Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts this morning to receive your word, that it would shape us and transform us. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Michelle. A familiar story, uh, probably the second most well-known parable of Jesus, probably after the Good Samaritan, I would say, somewhere in there in the top, the top three of well-known passages. But I want to draw our attention to a few things. We're going to talk about the parable in a minute. But I think it's important to get what Jesus gets at. Uh, we have to set up the context. And a lot of the context is found right in the first two verses of chapter 15. So again, if you have a Bible, turn back to verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Our passage begins with a really uncomfortable fact, and that's that Jesus likes being around people that I don't like being around. I shouldn't say I don't like being around, but sometimes there's people that are hard to be around, and Jesus seems to be quite okay with being around them. And then I feel bad because what's going on in me that I don't want to be around them? And that's basically the whole point of the passage. People that I might think as undesirable are really attracted to God. They really like being around Jesus. Jesus is popular with the sinners and the broken and the down and out. And you could ask, why? Why is he so popular with them? Well, it seems to be that because he actually spends time with them, he treats them with dignity, with humanity. He eats with them. He calls them into new life, but he also loves them into that new life. So he doesn't just sort of say, you should do this, you need to change your ways. He also kind of comes alongside them to do that. But of course, he does that not just for these people. He's done that for everyone, anyone. That's what Jesus does. He loves us, but he also calls us out of our sin and out of our death. As John 1 says, he comes with grace to love, but he also comes with truth to tell us what's true about ourselves. Doesn't shy away from our own sinfulness, doesn't cover it up. He shines a light on it, but then calls us out of it. So the Pharisees have a hard time with that. The Pharisees and the Bible scholars and, and, you know, the upright people who are kind of alongside Jesus here, and their response to Jesus eating with the sinners and drinking with the sinners is to be put out about it. They grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Not just eats with them, but he receives them. He welcomes them. There's an act of hospitality that Jesus extends to people. And so they grumble about it. It seems Luke, I'm not entirely sure of this, but I think Luke of the four gospel writers uses this grumble word, which means it's probably worth paying attention to if he's the one that sort of highlights that. And it's likely Luke is picking that word out intentionally because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, that word grumble is used really specifically in a few spots. And one of the spots that grumble comes up is in Exodus 15:16. 
And the grumbling that happens in Exodus 15, 16 is when the people of God have just come through the Red Sea experience. It's exhilarating, and they're kind of on a spiritual high because God did something very dramatic, right? And then what happens? They head into wilderness. And the wilderness is not as exciting as being led through the Red Sea. And they start to murmur or grumble against Moses and Aaron. And the issue there is we don't think God is doing what we thought he would do. And we're put out with God and we're put out with you as the leaders for leading us along in this. And to, to be fair, they don't know any different. But, you know, you think they would be along for the ride after the Red Sea experience. But they're longing for the security, get this, the security of slavery in Egypt which was undoubtedly worse for them remember Pharaoh wanted to kill their kids and they want to go back to that they're longing for that and now Luke's picking up that word from Exodus and he's using that same word to talk about what the Pharisees are doing here because now we have crowds following Jesus as he leads them through another kind of wilderness. It's the hostile country of Samaria, full of heretics and sinners and people that we as Jews don't like, that kind of thing. And now what's happening is, again, God's doing something that we don't expect him to do and we're put out about it. Just like Israel was in Exodus, now the people are put out that Jesus is taking time to eat with sinners and tax collectors. And so the Pharisees are having second thoughts about that. This is not what we expected. And they, like their ancient ancestors, are mumbling, grumbling, put out, why would Jesus do this? Or why is God leading us in this way? They're complaining about what God is doing. And, and they're complaining about God's hospitality that he's willing to eat with the people that we don't think he should want to eat with. Last week's parables that Brian preached on regarding the wedding feast and, uh, you know, welcoming people into that feast, remind us of God's heart, that God invites us to meal with him, to share in supper with him. And you can trace that theme, right? I mean, I, we've done this a couple times as a church. I, I kind of harp on this as a favorite theme of mine is food in the Bible and God inviting us to eat with him. But from the garden and creation through the Exodus Passover and through to the Last Supper and then to the church's own communion table, which looks forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation, God, all through his word, is calling us into eating with him, into a meal with him, inviting us with his hospitality to come and eat. And why does that matter? Because, well, who you share food with says something about you and says something about the people you're sharing with, right? If you invite someone over for lunch, you're welcoming them. You're saying you're worth having over at my place. I'm willing to open up a part of my life to yourself, um, even perhaps if the floor is not as clean as I wish it was. But I'm saying you have a place here. And God is doing that for each and every one of us. God extends his hospitality and says, come over for dinner tonight. I want to spend time with you. And that's the issue that the Pharisees are having is they're seeing Jesus, who's to be a respectable rabbi of sorts, though they don't always feel that he's doing that quite right, is spending time inviting people into relationship with him and eating with him, and they don't like that because that's saying that these people are welcome, 
and that God is being hospitable to them and that they're worthy of his attention. And so it touches on something deep in their own hearts about how do we treat people, how do we deal with people. And their central complaint really is, Jesus, you're, you're eating with the wrong people. And what do they accuse him of, of later, right? They accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. That's what they accuse Jesus of. He eats too much and drinks too much with the wrong people. And it's not too much to say that Jesus is killed eventually because of who he eats with. Israel crucifies their God because he's willing to eat with sinful people. And it's one thing to say that the God of the universe, the almighty creator of all things, who's made himself in flesh to dwell among us, to enter into our neighborhoods, he came to die for our sins and rise again. Yes, 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 of course. But before that, he comes to teach and to heal. Yes, of course, we believe that. But he also came to eat and share food with ordinary people. How blatantly ordinary, how messy. And yet, verse 1, the sinners were all drawing near to him. They are responding to the grace of God as God spends time with them, willing, willingly taking time to grow in relationships with them, even where the Pharisees may not be willing to. See, Jesus' table fellowship, it cuts across all of the sort of class barriers and societal barriers of the day, but it also it cuts across the Pharisees' pride in their own hearts. It, it draws to attention something in them that they have to struggle with and in the middle of all of that jesus shares a parable so that's what's going on when we get to the lost sheep and to the lost brothers first lost sheep shepherd has a sheep he goes after it i always found this confusing what's the point of leaving 99 sheep to go find the one sheep you sure have i hope you left someone with the 99 sheep Otherwise, you just lost 99 sheep. It's always bothered me as a kid. I presume he has someone else to help. That seems to be the case. But anyway, he goes after the one sheep. That's the point. Nicholas is worried that you let, let the 99 down as well. But anyway, he's lost the one. He leaves the 99. He goes and gets it. He finds it. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Then he comes home and he tells his friends, I found sheep. Come party. Which is funny to me. I've never had someone say, I found a thing. Let's, let's celebrate, right? <laughs> okay, found sheep, found my dog, let's go party. But anyway, he does. Sheep is back, let's party. Sheep is too weak to return on his own, actually. Sheep can't come back unless Shepherd comes and gets him. And then Shepherd rejoices, and the point is that, hey, Pharisees and scribes, you should be rejoicing too because I'm going to find the lost sheep of Israel, and you should be excited that they're coming back home. And doesn't the joy in heaven and the rejoicing in the story contrast the mumbling and grumbling of the Pharisees, right? So instead of mumbling and grumbling, you should be rejoicing. That's the point of that passage. And then we get the lost coin, which we skipped, though it's also good. Same point, though. Jesus is ramping up the idea. We have thing gets lost, go find thing, find the thing, celebrate about finding lost thing. That's the pattern, right? So we have sheep, lose sheep find sheep get sheep woohoo coin lose coin 
look for coin, find coin, have party about coin. Woohoo, right? And then you get to, now it amps up a bit, it's not sheep or coin, lost kid. Lost kid. Unlike sheep, lost kid says, I'm going to go. Sheep is dumb. Sheep just goes on his own. Kid is probably kind of dumb too, but he goes intentionally. Kid says, uh, Dad, I want my inheritance money now. I don't want to wait till you die. Dad agrees, which is crazy. Dad says, fine, which means kid gets a third of the property of the inheritance, essentially. Property, and probably a third of the cattle and a third of the money, third of the stuff. Dad keeps third, older brother keeps third, young son gets third. That's kind of how it works. Young kid takes everything, exercises his free will, and blows it all. Doesn't keep a lick of it. Blows it all on money and entertainment and experiences that are, we won't get into detail, right? He blows all the money, and now he's completely destitute, and he hires himself out to a pig farmer, who would likely be a Gentile, which is disgusting because pigs are considered unclean. So as a Jew, this is like as low as you go. And now he's feeding. He has to serve the unclean pigs the slop and thinks, the slop looks pretty good. Maybe I will eat slop. This is pretty bad. This is pretty low, right? He doesn't have any food. He doesn't have any friends because any friends he had, he probably got because he was popular with having money, right? He's got nothing. And then we get verse 17. When he came to himself. So there's this moment when this kid hits rock bottom where he suddenly realizes oh man, I've totally blown it. And side, side point here, because this is not the main point of what I want to preach on, but side point, Jesus, and Jesus lets us use our free will to hit rock bottom if that's what we want to do. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you realize, I need to get right with God. I need to go back to God. Father, father could have come after him and tried to stop him. Father doesn't come after kid. Let's kid exercise his free will till kid's ready to come back. And as soon as the kid's ready to come back, the father's ready to receive him. Parents, sometimes watching your kid, I've never had a kid leave us or leave the faith. I can't imagine that's incredibly difficult. I have no idea what that feels like. God knows what that feels like. So if that's you, you're in good company. And it's okay to be grieving in that place. But know that God can take the kid to rock bottom. And when that kid's ready to come back, God is ready to receive them. And you can be right alongside God ready to receive when that time's come. May not be when you hope it is. You may have wished, I kind of wish this kid would turn around and get right sooner. But maybe he's got to get right to the bottom with the pigs first. Because God lets us exercise our free will. He doesn't force us to love him. Sheep had no choice. Sheep wanders off. Sheep can't get home. Go get sheep. Kid had a choice all along, right? And so it's not till the end when the kid realizes, now I want to change. That he change, he sets, you know, he re reorients his course and starts back for home. The father is ready to receive him. Kid has a, a rehearsed apology, which is, which is funny. He said, he's like, well, maybe I, I'm better, I, I could be a servant, like, for my dad. Because the servants at dad's house were doing better than I'm doing right now. So that seems like a good option. So maybe we'll do that. Kid gets two sentences of his re rehearsed speech out, and then dad just interrupts him. Do you catch that? 
Kids try, he's got his whole apology. Dad comes running down the driveway with his tunic hiked up, which is pretty undignified. Comes running down to receive the kid. Kid starts saying his rehearsed speech. Dad interrupts him, says, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're forgiven, you're home. And then the ring and the shoes and the, the jacket, that's all signs of he's now a full member. He's reincorporated fully back into the household, back into the membership of the home. He's a full son again. He's fully back. But the kid has to return to his senses. And of course, there's a whole sermon in the father's amazing love that's displayed, right? That the father's waiting for him to come home. That he's ready to embrace him. There is no um, kind of holding on to him. I'm not going to totally forgive you until you do this or you do that or you say this. That You know, there's none of that. My son's back. He was dead, but now he's alive. Right? So there's something in the Father's love that we can learn from, that his forgiveness is simple, but it's full. There's no more talk about the past. There's no more holding on to bitterness about what happened. There's no more holding on to the hurt to hold over him for later when the son, you know, does something wrong. The son is reconciled and returned fully. And this is the promise of the gospel for everyone who hears and believes. That wherever you are in your life, it's not too late to turn around and come back to the Father. He will welcome you home, period. He's that good. He welcomes us home. We can keep trying to do things on our own way. We can keep trying to mess. We can keep messing up and, and, and finding ourselves in worse and worse situations. Um, but God is working on our hearts, calling us back to himself. There's just incredible hope for us. That's the gospel. And once we come back, we are welcomed fully, alive, and forgiven. And that's, that's what Jesus is inviting the sinners and the tax collectors into, right? They're the younger son in the story. And so they're in this, this where they've tried to live their lives on their own. They've tried to find meaning and hope and, and purpose in their lives, but they haven't found it. They're still full of sin, and they're still broken, and they still mess things up, and they're still full of guilt and shame. And Jesus, by extending his table hospitality to them, is welcoming that back home. He's basically saying, look, I'm waiting in the driveway to receive you. I'm ready. I'm ready. Here I am. Right? They've, they've never seen that. And so they're attracted to him because he's displaying the love of God to them. What a wonderful sermon. And then we just sort of stop. We could stop right there. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Right? And that's the trick of this parable because there's an older brother. That's not the end of the story. We can stop the story there. It's a very nice story, right? We don't. Something happens very intentionally that Jesus does. He's had three stories of finding a lost thing. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost person, and then there's a celebration after we find them, right? And so the Pharisees have heard that three times, and it's, it's almost like, okay, their defenses are down, and then Jesus slips in this fourth story, starting in verse 25. It's the story of another lost son. It really could be the story of two prodigal brothers, but anyway. The older son is furious that the father's willing to forgive the younger son. He's so put out with it, he won't even go into the party. He's just mad. And so the father has to come out and leave the party and go find the older son who's on the porch. And the older son lashes out at his dad and he says, I've served you all this time. I obeyed you. I never ran away. I never backslid. 
I did all the right things. And now look what you've done. You're celebrating this useless son of, he doesn't even call him brother. You're celebrating this useless son of yours. And here I've been the whole time trying to live my life right. And he actually likens his life with the father, not as celebration, but as servitude. I've been working for you. I've been trying to live this for you. Sometimes we can, we can think about following God as a list of rules to keep up. And if that's you, that you're in danger of older brother territory. So the older brother sees living with the father as a sort of legalism to keep up instead of a party to join. Christianity is not about just keeping a set of rules, as much as there are rules to keep, but there are rules to help you live well so you can continue to live in the party of life with God. And the father comes out to call him into the celebration. He says, come on in. Come on in. And the son is so full of his own self-righteousness that he resents the father's attitude to the lost and broken. It's very, very similar to what happens in Jonah, in the Jonah story, right? Jonah, prophet of God. God says, I've got a calling for you. Go and preach my forgiveness and love to these people in Nineveh. And Jonah says, don't want to. I don't like them. I don't want them to be forgiven. I don't want them to be healed. I don't like that you want to do that, God. I'm going the other way. And God eventually goes after Jonah. Jonah eventually does preach. And frustratingly for him, they actually repent and believe in God. God uses his terrible preaching to actually reach their hearts, right? They turn around, and they're loving God. And now Jonah's even more put out about it because it worked, right? He's so frustrated. He's angry with God. How could you save these rotten people? Just leave me here and die. And that's how Jonah ends. He's just the worst prophet ever. But God uses him for his glory. Now, Jonah never gets over his anger at God for showing his incredible mercy and grace where, where he, as the upright person, thinks it shouldn't, shouldn't be shown. It's not deserved. It's the same thing that happens here. The prodigal son's story ends with the older brother angry with his father for showing mercy to the one who doesn't deserve it. And the father even affectionately appeals to him, son, you're always with me. All I have is yours, right? You have my grace and my hope and my life. You're already part of this party. Live in it. But the older son is blind to what's real. And he's so all he sees is, is this unmerited grace extended to the younger son, the sinful younger brother, and he doesn't see the father's love for him as well. So in his mind, it's something unfair has happened. And you know what? Where we stand shapes how we see things. And I lived this out last week. At about 4.30 in the morning, I was holding Lewis, stumbling through our kitchen, trying not to fall asleep. And uh, it was very dark, and I was, he was crying. And uh, I've got him, and I looked out the window of our bathroom. And through the window, you can see our fence and the driveway, and you can see what should be our van sitting there. And I looked out the window, and there was no van. And for a fleeting moment, I went, this is the kid. Van is stolen. And then I realized, no van's not stolen. The blinds were down, halfway down the window, in such a way that they lined up perfectly with the fence in the distance. 
And of course, in the dark, it just all looks like dark shadow. And so instead of seeing driveway, all I was seeing was, was lines. And, and so I ducked down a little bit and was like, oh, there you are, right? There's Van. And I carried on. But where you stand affects how you see things. And sometimes the position in which you stand actually blinds you to what's real. So for a moment, a fleeting moment, I thought, Van's gone. Van's been stolen. Until I realized also half asleep, right? Looking. Oh, no, Van's right there. I misread the shadows. And in the same way, the older son, he's looking and all he sees is dad celebrating this useless kid. But if he would only adjust his position, he would see, but I was a useless kid too. I don't deserve dad's stuff. But dad's extended that grace to me just as much. I'm just as much part of this party. I've, just, I've been with him the whole time. Dad still loves the older son. He wants him to join in the celebration. And so the younger son, of course, represents the sinners who are following Jesus, but the older son represents the Pharisees. And in the same way that the father calls the older son back in, Jesus is still inviting those Pharisees. You're welcomed into this too. Come in and join in the meal with the sinners and the tax collectors. Rather than looking at them from the outside frustrated that Jesus is, you know, eating and drinking with these lost people. Jesus is saying, but I love you too. Come on in. You're invited too. So like I said, in each of these cases, each of the stories, we have the same pattern. We have lost, search, found, celebration. But the story of the older son, the fourth story, ends before the conclusion. You have lost, searched, found, and then Jesus stops talking. And he lets the story sink in with the Pharisees. Will you join the celebration or not? And he just leaves it there. He just leaves it there hanging. He lets the implication sit uncomfortably with the Pharisees. And I would hope one by one, perhaps, perhaps they realize I'm the older brother. I'm full of my own self-righteousness, and I see my life of God as a servitude to uphold instead of a life to enter into, as a list of rules to follow, to, to follow instead of the salvation life of God, which is freeing. And friends, like the Pharisees, we too can forget that we were once lost. That's the older brother's problem, and it's the Pharisees' problem. They've forgotten their lostness. They're so used to being found that they forgot that they too were once sinners. That we too are found by Jesus. And we can all be tempted towards this sense of self-righteousness because self-righteousness rears its head anywhere that you try and pursue authentic righteousness. So any community, any church community where we're seeking to love God and pursue Him in holiness and walk with Him, there's a temptation. It's an insidious temptation that we look at our own accomplishments and our own track record and become proud of what we see there. That's the Pharisee's problem, and it's the older brother's problem. I never left, Dad. I always served you, Dad. And yet he's unable to enter into the celebration that the father and the younger son have begun. And so we too, like the Pharisees, 
are called to walk with Jesus sometimes into a wilderness or into Samaria where our own pride, my own pride, my own self-righteousness is brought to the light. And then I have to deal with that. I have to say, okay, God. I realize I'm lost just as much. I'm not a found one. Yes, I'm found and forgiven, but I can't let that become a source of pride. I'm, I'm still a sinner who comes just as I am without one plea. Lord, would you come and shape my life? And Jesus calls us to himself. He calls both the younger brother and the older brother. The father invites both to come into the meal, right? And he does that as a, as a glutton and a drunkard. In Luke, Jesus is almost always either coming from or going to a dinner party. It's kind of his thing. And as we head towards this meal, may we remember that we're invited to eat and drink with him, not because we're perfect, not because we have it all together, but because we too were once lost and have been found. And maybe today you were found a long time ago. Well, maybe let this text and this sermon remind you not to go the Pharisee way where you look at your own accomplishments and your own lack of backsliding and let that become a source of pride for you. I never left. I never left. I've always served you. Don't let that become pride. But maybe, maybe you've been found just recently and that's still so real for you. God's abounding love and mercy and forgiveness and let the meal be a celebration of that. Whether you've been found recently or, or were found years ago, let this meal be a reminder that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners and invites them into life with himself. Or maybe this morning you've never been found and you realize I'm still kind of lost, actually. I'm still out there somewhere. Well, hear today the amazing grace and love of God for you. That you too are invited to the table to eat and to drink. All of us are welcomed so we can know the extravagant grace of God. So let's pray and uh, we're going to get ready to come to the table. Lord, we thank you this morning that whether uh, we're doing okay in life or whether we've done really poorly with life, whether we're older kids or younger kids, uh, God, you invite all of us to come. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that amazing grace that you invite us to receive, to come home, and that when we arrive, Lord, there's no extended guilt, there's no sort of session where we go over all the details there's just a forgiveness and a grace and a welcome home and a full membership back into the family and so lord i just pray today if there's anyone here who's who feels like maybe they're on the outside looking in lord would they hear today the call from you to come and and be welcomed into this family to join in the party into the celebration of life with you and if that's you this morning i pray that you would uh, that you would come Give your heart to Jesus. Say, Lord, I want to follow you and serve you. I'm tired of trying to live my own life. Would you lead and guide me? I want to come home to you. So, Lord, as we come to this table, would it be a, a tangible reminder of, of the text that we've looked at this morning, that you welcome us. You welcome the sinner and the saved one. Uh, that you deal with our own pride, Lord. And you welcome us home. Thanks, Jesus, that you do that.